Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Since the sun rose in the east this morning, there will be two guests on today's program. Jody Dean will mull over our common obsession with the post-liberals, and Sarang Shadore of the Quincy Institute will talk about the G20, the BRICS, and the erosion of U.S. global dominance. Regular listeners may have noticed that I've been fascinated by the rise of a new tendency on the right, the post-liberals. Writers like Saral Bamari, who's been on this show twice, Adrian Vermeule, who refused an invitation, and Patrick Deneen, as yet uninvited. Like many on the right, they're hostile to liberalism. Unlike many, they include free market capitalism on their enemies list. They're Catholics, and they blend their brand of anti-capitalism with an unpleasant social conservatism. Behind the News regular Jody Dean has a review of Amari and Deneen's latest books in the Los Angeles Review of Books, so I thought it'd be good to muse on our shared interest in this school. We talk some about Catholic social doctrine, which is usually traced to Pope Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical Rerum Novarum. It aimed for a middle ground between capitalism and socialism, and has been a major influence on these thinkers. Pope Leo argued that property owners should behave responsibly, but need not be expropriated. They should act as the steward of God's providence for the benefit of others, something that property owners are not famous for. There should be a balance of power between bosses and workers. Unions are good as long as they don't go too far. And the state should govern in the interests of the common good, but not get carried away and usurp the role of families and communities. Jody Dean is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Jody Dean. We both share a fascination with these post-liberals or whatever we want to call them. It doesn't mean we share their worldview. But uh, yeah, what do you make of this tendency? Um, the right has been so intellectually dead for so long. It's interesting to see some signs of life on it. But otherwise, well, how do you explain our shared fascination with these characters? Uh, it could be perversity. <laughs> <laughs> but but more, more seriously, I think there's something really interesting in seeing these Catholic conservatives attacks on economic liberalism. I think that's really interesting and useful. And so in some ways, it's interesting to people like us, because we share the criticisms of capitalism that they have, but then they go in these odd directions that we disagree with. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is um, the appeal to a common good makes a sort of sense. Socialist and communist have an idea of the common good. Like we think of the struggles of the oppressed as trying to generate a good for everyone. I mean, at least I think of it that way. There's something a little bit appealing about their approach that's that's critical of capitalism. It's emphasizing some version of a good that's shared by all. And that's in the abstract. Again, concretely, some of the criticisms of particularly economic liberalism raised by Deneen and Amari, they're spot on, particularly Amari and his criticisms of the widespread use of arbitration agreements, his criticism of the way that big pharma has used the courts to escape paying fees, his account of the ways that the economic takeover of small town newspapers has eviscerated public knowledge of what's going on in one's local community and so on. I mean, these are the kinds of criticisms that people on the left make and to see them on the right suggests the possibility that we can have a different debate in this country that's not just about, oh, what's the most efficient? So it could be that there's a possibility of a better economic debate that puts the lives and working conditions of working people at the center. Well, Mario is, makes the argument that uh, he is just reiterating Catholic social doctrine. I mean, it's pretty much out of Pope Leo, right? Yeah, absolutely. Then we get to this question of if people are defending policies to help the working class, are they necessarily the allies of socialist? I'm going to say no, because they're not our allies, but they can open up a debate where we can, on, from the right and from the left, attack the capitalist economic liberal center and their suppositions of what government needs to do. So it doesn't make these Catholics necessarily our allies, but it means that we can, from each side, squeeze 
the capitalist center. I'm kind of concerned that positions like Amari's are really trying to provide an alternative language of grievance, right? Like they want to win over the working class and try to, you know, they're using this idea that Republican, that the Republican Party is becoming a party of the working class. I don't think that's accurate, despite what folks are saying about poll data, but that they're trying to win over working class people to a conservative doctrine seems right. And we have to fight them on that. Pope Leo was writing at a very different time, you know, 130 some years ago, when socialism seemed very powerful. So his intervention was designed to co-opt or resist the rise of socialism. Whereas now, with socialism not so powerful, this kind of Catholic doctrine has a different political effect. Yeah, conceivably it can have a different political effect because the socialist left is weak. On the other hand, over the last six, eight years, the socialists in the United States have become stronger than they've been in over 50 years. In some ways, it could be because of the rising strength of socialism since the Bernie campaign, since the rise of DSA, since the increased power of labor um, over the last year, that they see a good reason to take over socialist ideas. So yeah, you're right. It's not the same as when the German Social Democratic Labor Party was the most powerful source in Europe. But it's also not the case that this is like the 1990s, where everybody thinks that you know markets and globalization is the best of all possible economic worlds. Like that's not where we are. In fact, where we are is a place where neoliberalism, that consensus has collapsed and it's kind of a free-for-all. It's a much more porous, fluid, dynamic location. I hate the language of realignment, but that actually might be kind of right right now. We're in this interregnum period where any, any new combinations are possible. The rise of socialism could explain some of the mainstream attention to Omari's book. They're happy to incorporate the critique without all the associated socialist baggage. And what I wonder is, like, is that good for us or bad for us? (laughs) That's the question, yeah. Yeah, I think I want to push the view that the more the mainstream accepts the fact that capitalism is killing us, that capitalism, particularly this kind of capitalism that we've had over the last 20 or 30 years, that capitalism has led to the real evisceration of the quality of life of people throughout the United States, the decimation of cities, the diseases of despair, the increase in suicide rates, the um, decline in life expectancy. The markets can't do this. And that when the mainstream has to acknowledge that, that lets us change the debate in good ways. So, yeah, if you have your social democracy with a little bit of control attached to it, that could be more congenial to many on the mainstream. But at least they're being forced to move in a direction that can likely be better for the vast majority of working people. Now, we can't overlook a part of this, a major part of this post-liberal agenda, though, the social conservatism. Yeah. For people on our side, we just can't accept the homophobia, the transphobia, you know, the anti-feminism that uh, so many of these uh, folks are, are uh, hawking. Amari, in particular, keeps them under wraps, but um, this is not something we should compromise with. Absolutely no compromise, right? Um, you don't throw people under the bus. Um, if you're trying to look for ways that are going to benefit the working class, you think of the whole class and the class includes women and the class includes people with all sorts of different genders and all sorts of different sexualities. And so you don't carve up the working class and throw half of the people under the bus. The social conservative part is also interesting because it makes us have to grapple with, I don't think in the United States, we don't really have a, a politics that's congenial towards alliances and coalitions um, because of this stupid two-party system. I don't know. I think of somebody like um, Marco Rubio. Is there any way that socialists would support Marco Rubio or J.D. Vance because they might have a couple of good platform statements regarding unions and regarding increased wages or benefits working class people. I don't think so, right? Like, it's not like this is about voting and we can't, we're going to like form some sort of new voting coalition. What I think it's 
about is changing the conditions of discussion and changing in a major way the suppositions of what government is supposed to do in the economy. It's not like we're going to be in a position where like, oh, let's vote for people who share our economic beliefs, even as they're trying to block gender affirming health care and prevent women from having um, abortions. It's more like, how does the debate become reshaped? I to me, Marco Rubio's unambiguously the enemy. <laughs> He's the enemy, yeah. But on the other hand, the, the fact that they're bringing up these issues of social dis- disintegration, alienation, fragmentation, all these sorts of things, that there's certainly been a long vocabulary in the left for talking about those things. But I don't know, it's sort of receded. I guess we're afraid of sounding conservative. But these, these are real issues that uh, a lot of people are concerned with that need to be addressed that we may not be um, vocal enough about. I've been wondering about that exact same thing. I've been wondering, like, is it the case that Deneen, Amari, these conservatives are talking about the general level of social crisis in a way that the left has kind of been ignoring recently? Or am I just reading the wrong people? Like, I wasn't really, I haven't been sure about that, but it has seemed to me at least that they are emphasizing these real widespread, horrible problems of, of like the hinterlands, that at least the, um, you know, the, the kind of typing left on the, on the two coasts doesn't strike me as having paid sufficient attention to in recent years. I also may be wrong on that, but I don't feel like I've, I've noticed people paying that much attention or sufficient attention to these real crises around opioids and the the collapse of everyday life for people. But again, in our fragmented, enormous, constant media world, it can always be the case that people are talking about you know everything and it just doesn't register. One of the interesting things about these guys is that unlike many people on the right, they join uh, their critique of political liberalism, social liberalism, with a critique of economic liberalism. And that makes them somewhat different. Yeah, I love this part of what they're doing. It's basically the continued rupture of the 20th century fusionist coalition of conservatives, economic liberals. You know, this is is something that they have in common with um, conservative writers, you know, across the 20th century, which is, you know, attacking other conservatives for being insufficiently conservative or being correctly. (laughs) That's pretty great. And I think it's absolutely crucial for those of us on the left to know this so that when we're arguing against contemporary conservatives, we know which ones we're arguing against. They're not all economic liberals. And we can't just assume, oh, conservative equals free market capitalists. That's just not the case. And the most exciting and interesting stuff that they're doing is not the free market business anymore. Like they know this and they're trying to capture that part of the political market or capture that part of the contemporary political discussions for the right. And if the left doesn't come in there and argue with them on this basis, then we lose out on the opportunity to shape what happens next. I'm speaking with the political scientist, Jody Dean. In his substack the other day, Patrick Dean uh, wrote about uh, Russell Kirk. I think he's giving a, a lecture in honor of Kirk. Uh, and he cited a 1955 article by one of the founders of National Review, Frank Meyer, that was critical of Kirk's The Conservative Mind for being too much about order and too hostile to the idea of liberty. Now, Meyer, Buckley, the National Review people were all about, you, you mentioned the fusionism, fusing tradition and the free market, which though it might seem intellectually unstable, has proven politically fruitful for the right. Now, Melinda Cooper makes a persuasive argument that uh, the social conservatism, the family values business is very much uh, a way to deal with the social disintegration that uh, free market economics and welfare cuts and that sort of thing gives rise to. It's an interesting fissure now that this is uh, coming out, this revival of a sense of a politics of order as opposed to a politics of liberty, which has been the watchword of the right for decades now. Yeah, Deneen in particular is really all about order. I'm glad you mentioned Melinda Cooper because Deneen seems to be responding to, let's say, the kind of contemporary social crisis in much the same way that neoconservatives did in the 80s, which is sexualizing it. 
viewing sex as the primary location of disorder. So he's just like freaking apoplectic about pornography, divorce, gay marriage, gay anything, and the possibility that people can um, choose how they express and live their gendered lives. Like these things just for him are the ultimate sign of of disorder and the place where everything like like all of society collapses and it's just it's so reminiscent though of of an earlier neoconservative gesture liberalism we talked a little bit about this already but let's take it on directly the socialist marxist left has long been critical of liberalism as an individualistic uh, doctrine samuel moyne is now arguing that there's a liberatory uh, emancipatory content to it that got lost during the cold war but how much is there to this post-liberal critique of liberalism, and uh, how much should we uh, defend it? It seems to me that the heart of the post-liberal critique is the emphasis on the primacy of the individual, on individualism as the core of what politics should be about, of what governance should, should support. That their primary critique, I mean, the, and I think the strongest one that they make, I mean, not strongest exactly, like the most challenging, the one that we really have to grapple with the most is whether or not the entire basis of government and life is to secure the flourishing of the individual. And the post-liberal critique, it strikes me, is is at its strongest point when, I, when it identifies this as the pivot point, the key thing where is individual autonomy the ultimate goal of life, of society, is individual freedom the condition of flourishing? Is it the primary measure um, that we need to use in society for determining governance, determining a good life? Um, Liberalism um, wants to say so, right? Liberalism prioritizes the individual, right? And and it seems to me that the history of of liberal thought goes from something like individual self-preservation to self-determination to self-cultivation, self-realization. Maybe we could even add self-care at this point in this little line. And is this primacy of the individual self the purpose of life and society? Liberals say yes, I say no, right? I don't I don't accept that. And to that extent, I think the post-liberals are right to pick on that. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, okay, so you need to install a religious social order? No. <laughs> does that mean that you should install measures to prevent individual flourishing? No. Does it mean you should install things that are totally antagonistic to individual rights? No. But it does mean that you can view politics and government not as having the primary purpose of securing the individual. Insofar as the core of liberalism is protecting, serving, upholding just the individual, I don't think that that's what we need to hold on to. But that's not all that liberal is. I think that that's the core of it. Some folks might want to say, well, liberalism is about rights. It's like, okay, you're fine. But all sorts of other political ideologies also have rights. That's not, it's not the thing that differentiates um, liberalism. Same thing with constitutional order, rule of law or anything. That's, liberalism is not the only ide- ideology that promises that. So as we think about, is there something to hold on to from liberalism? We've got to pinpoint what is the core that makes liberalism what it is. And if it's individualism, then I think, no, we don't have to hold on to that. Trump in January 6th and all that business made um, a lot of people on the left perhaps a little fonder of liberal institutions than they were uh, previously. Uh, There's the sense of, you know, due process, competitive elections, all that business. When under attack by what seemed to be like pretty much outright fascists, when those things are under attack, you kind of want to come to the defense of liberal institutions. So do we want to? But rule of law and elections are not the processes that distinguish liberalism from, say, socialism. So do, when we, we can say, oh, geez, we want to defend the rule of law and elections without saying, and that means we're defending liberalism. So we could even say we want to defend um, liberal democracy. We want to defend democratic institutions. The interesting thing right now, and I think this is the one of the things that makes um, Moyne's book interesting for this moment, is that it's associating what was under attack, not with democracy, but with liberalism. And what it seems to me that he's trying to get people to, to want to defend is liberalism. But I want to ask, why now? Why not be defending democracy and extending democracies towards socialism? Is it because Moyne actually 
wants to make an argument for a liberal socialism. I mean, I don't, um, I think Moyne's a smart guy, an interesting guy, like on, on, you know, roughly close to on our side. But why the defense specifically of liberalism in the current context, if we can say that what happened on January 6th was an attack, not just on liberalism, but on something else, right? On, you know, democratic institutions, for example. But also, I mean, Trump's attack on the civil service and all those sorts of things, too, are very disturbing. And this kind of personalist, quasi-dictatorship he seemed to long for. To find myself defending the independence of the civil service is a weird feeling, but I'm there. Yeah, but I actually think um, as socialists, we can say we're all in favor of bureaucracy. (laughs) It's like, save the bureaucrats. And I'm saying that a little facetiously, but I actually... I actually mean it. Like, since when was the government bureaucracy the core of liberalism? Like, that equation I find really surprising. What now, freedom? Is that a socialist value or is that something that that we should leave to the liberals? Freedom is a socialist value, particularly when we start thinking of forms of social freedom, collective freedom, the conditions of possibility for freedom. If we leave freedom up to the liberals, what freedom becomes is strictly individual freedom. And a socialist approach to freedom is much more interested in the conditions of possibility for freedom. And that would be things like Education, being able to secure the basic conditions um, of life, sort of you know, health, housing, um, food. The conditions of possibility for freedom need to be foregrounded much more than something like what liberals might call individual freedom. So we can't leave freedom up to them. Like there are socialist accounts of freedom. And I think the socialist accounts are going to be the most crucial in a time of climate change, right? Like individual freedom is not the the framework or the lens or the perspective that we need as we're grappling with how do we adapt to the warming climate? How do we keep the damn fossil fuels in the ground and stop the oil and gas sector from destroying the world? Those questions are answered through socialism, not through what's necessary for there to be peoples capable of freedom. That we don't get there from an an individual freedom idea. But the question of order, the critique of the anarchy of capitalist production is an old line in the left. So a bit of order would seem in order. (laughs) I look at this as for communists, order is discipline. It's a kind of discipline that comes about through commitment to political struggle and commitment to the forms of cooperation, collectivity, solidarity that we need for carrying out that struggle. So when we talk about order, we might think about what are the different locations in our being together where order is important. So on the communist side, it's the kind of order that we need from one another in order to act um, together collectively. The post-liberals seem most preoccupied with sexual order. I got to say, I don't think that's a That's something we need to really worry about. I think we um, secure people the possibilities for taking care of their health, for being personally fulfilled. And then we also educate them towards comradeship and solidarity and treating others as valuable human beings rather than as sort of instruments just to be used. And then we can kind of let sexual order sort itself out. Well, their, their notion of order seems to be a, a revival of the old great chain of being. It's very much um, associated with a hierarchy, and uh, that's not our kind of thing. No, not at all. And one of the things that I find kind of strange with um, some of these post-liberals is, you, you know, they're indebted to Aquinas. They also read Aristotle. But Aristotle had an idea of citizenship, of ruling and being ruled in turn. And that's not a hierarchical notion. Um, Even though he had other things about hierarchy, one of his core ideas is about kind of taking turns. And that's a kind of order as well, right? And it's an order that says, yes, you know, some people are going to make decisions for us, but they don't have to make decisions forever. They can be limited. They might make decisions this year and then someone else make decisions next year. So order can come in all sorts of different ways, different fashions. Um, It doesn't have to be eternal hierarchical order. I almost find it like an excuse for them. Like maybe they really believe that there is 
this hierarchical order in a medieval fashion. In fact, I was listening to the um, one of their podcasts recently, and Deneen made an aside like, oh, yeah, I'm sure like many of our listeners do support a feudal order. And I'm thinking, what? Wait, what? Like straight up, they do support a feudal order? Anyway, but it seems a kind of perverse move, right? One that's only there because they feel so deeply threatened by the equality of women, of people of different genders and sexualities, of people of different races, people of different classes. They're so threatened by that, that they're just, they're going medieval on us. Finally, neoliberalism has been pronounced dead almost as many times as Marxism, but it does seem pretty durable. Is this tendency, though, a product of the disintegration of neoliberalism? Yeah, I really do think um, neoliberalism is disintegrating, particularly if we think about neoliberalism as a set of economic and policy views that were set in in the you know the seventies and eighties as a way to consolidate um, and protect the position of um, holders of wealth by changing the global structure of markets, um, disciplining and hindering labor and that sort of thing. If we recognize it as a kind of limited policy and not just another name for capitalism, then yeah, it's changing. Like it's fragmented. It is not the default economic position right now. But what exactly is going to replace it? Like we don't know. Right? The the buzzword of the last four or five months has been industrial policy. Whether or not that's neoliberal, we can argue about. I would be on the side that it's a way to try to help neoliberalism, particularly because of how the Biden administration has been trying to fund its provisions via elaborate tax plans, but it's not the same thing. And it's responding to this fragmenting um, neoliberalism. So yeah, I think I think we need to be prepared for thinking like, okay, this really is a time for socialist and social democratic economic approaches to push. Like we've got more opportunity than we have in ages because of the collapse of a neoliberal consensus. That was Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. A little outside of Elizabeth Town, there's a little bar where I'd sit down and trade a couple country songs for Kentucky bourbon. A little old guy in the middle of the night, learning how to love and learning how to fight and learning how to like my friend of her. Hell, there's hell everywhere I go I'm just sticking with the devil I know some of the title song of Ashley McBride's new album, The Devil I Know. Next, the evolving international order. On September 9th and 10th, the group of 20, the G20, held its annual summit in New Delhi. Two weeks earlier, the BRICS countries held their annual summit in Johannesburg. What is the significance of these organizations, and how do they relate to the decline of U.S. imperial power? To address those questions, here is Sarang Shadore, director of the Global South Program at the Quincy Institute. Shadori uses the abbreviation BRI a couple of times. It stands for the Belt and Road Initiative, a massive Chinese infrastructure development project begun in 2013 that's been building ports, railroads, highways, and the like in over 150 countries around the world. How you see the project depends a lot on how you see China. If you don't like the country, you see it as some sort of neo-colonial scheme, and if you do, you see it as less exploitative than previous Western efforts along these lines. Many of the complaints come from the U.S. and its allies. Participant countries generally have few objections, at least for now. Sarang Shadore. Let's start with the G20 conference that just concluded. Did it accomplish anything? Does not condemning Ukraine count as an accomplishment? What's your evaluation of the uh, the event? 
Well, I think the fact that the G20 survived uh, to tell another tale and live another day is itself an accomplishment. Because if you look at the G20's last year's event in Bali, it was very contentious in terms of the Ukraine war and the divides that it caused between the Western states, the so-called G7 countries, and uh, Russia and China, and with the global South states like Indonesia trying their best to craft a compromise, which Indonesia did quite skillfully last year, and India did one better this year. You mentioned the G7. Is this a coherent formation, or is it just too divided between the G7 and uh, other interests? Well, it's deeply divided. There's no question. Uh, even this success, uh, we have to see if it will be repeated next year. We don't know what the situation in the world is going to be in 2024. The divisions are stark. Nevertheless, the interesting thing about the G20 is that it's actually been working on some common problems because that's the whole idea of the G20 is to bring the main 20 or now 21 with the inclusion of the African Union uh, players in in the room, and these cover more than 80% of the global GDP to solve common problems, primarily economic problems, but uh, there are other problems beyond economic, like climate change. Uh, so this is the idea. This is a one compact forum where just 20 key players can sit down in a room and, and talk. And uh, in that sense, yes, the divisions are stark, they have become much starker since the Ukraine war, but nevertheless, the problems haven't gone away. So the reason for the G20 to exist is still very much there. I saw an interview with Jayati Ghosh earlier today, and she was complaining that it was just banal, bland. Nothing was really said, nothing really happened. Basically, the conference was a flop. Is that a fair indictment? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I mean, I think if we, it depends on what our expectations are of, of these events. A lot of people dismiss them as just irrelevant because they're talk shops. People produce a statement and go off and do what they want. That's kind of true, significantly true. But the aim of these sorts of gatherings is not actually to formulate a detailed solution to a problem then implemented within months and hey presto we see something being fixed that's just not the way it can work in any real world i think the value of these events is twofold one is the fact that they can air differences and in airing differences in contesting each other that's a kind of a communication so you get these leaders and these are leader level summits from so most leaders do show up though not all. This year, we didn't have Xi Jinping from China or the Mexican president hasn't, didn't come either. He hasn't come really to these, but most of them are there and they get a very raw front seat understanding of each other's priorities and concerns. Occasionally, they do actually come up with solutions like for debt relief. The G20 has come up with something called the common framework where the traditional group of uh, rich countries, a Paris club of creditors, have now been joined by China to come up with, with a common approach to resolving some of these very difficult debt crises in Africa and elsewhere. And that, in fact, has had some limited success. We had Zambia's restructuring package agreed upon, and that some credit must go to the G20 forum and the common framework on which the solution was based. I'm not trying to overstate the case. Such successes are not many, but the fact that they gather and they air differences and they have to haggle and negotiate is a form of communication which you don't get at the UN because the UN is just too large. It's again important too, but the G20 is a more compact format. The second reason the G20 is important is because leaders get a chance to set up bilateral meetings with each other. So there's a chance for, let's say, President Biden to meet. Uh, if Xi Jinping had come, that would have been an opportunity for the two leaders to meet. In fact, last year in Bali, that's what happened. President Biden and President Xi met and agreed to certain key confidence-building measures that they seem to be rather serious about. And then you had the balloon incident, and that set back a lot of things. Bali, again, provided that venue for the two leaders to be in a room 
which otherwise would would require a state visit and that's uh, dicey terrain to go to a country that clearly is is a rival you open yourself to a lot of criticism at home if you do that you said they're bringing in china on the debt questions does this signify a less hard line than the classic paris club imf us treasury dominated arrangements in the past to some extent it does in the old days when you had debt crises there was only one game in town led by the united states and its european allies and they used to impose pretty harsh conditions in some cases on countries to cut their deficits to abolish spending on very important social priorities in many ways shortchange human development for meeting the needs of creditors now i'm not saying that's not happening still <laughs> Uh, that's still happening but now we have a more complex set of players you have china you have the western states and in some ways unfortunately perhaps you also have private bondholders who are not political actors so their horizons are short term and they are in it entirely for the money but nevertheless you have more actors which can create more problems in negotiating the package but also provides the debtor country with more points of negotiation in some ways can perhaps enhance their leverage or they can uh, try and cut partial deals so not exactly a wonderful situation at the moment but i i would say it's 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 improved from the 80s or the 90s what uh, does the absence of xi jinping mean why was he not there and what did it do for the conference so it's always hard to understand what are the deliberations inside a leader's mind or in his in his case perhaps a close set of advisors added to that but there are two possibilities or probably both may be operational one is of course that india and china don't have the best of relations and there's a chill in the relationship since 2020 when there was a military clash on the border high in the mountains that killed perhaps 24 or more troops from both sides uh, that uh, situation has eased partly there has been some disengagement of troops but fundamentally hasn't changed you still have a major build up of troops on both sides uh, that border is militarized and trust to the extent it existed before 2020 is really at rock bottom it could be interpreted as xi jinping not wanting to show up at india's party the other explanation which also may be valid is the fact that the chinese president is not ready to encounter president biden face to face just yet we had that bali meeting then you had the balloon and there's been just a lot of actions from the administration that have been very uh, hostile or very targeting china in ways on technology on tariffs there's been the us working with the south koreans and J- and the japanese in this trilateral format that's clearly a a move to try and hem in china there's this us philippines alliance that's ramping up that is in some ways provocative against china and of course china is having its uh, moments of assertion and and intrusion uh, in the south china sea as well so the relationship broadly between the us and china including its allies is not good and the balloon incident set back what some thought would be a limited thaw now we have seen some administration officials go to beijing there's been some positive signaling from janet yellen and and others but we haven't seen reciprocity from the chinese yet they they haven't yet accepted the possibility that there's a genuine thought they're still distrustful they 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 are not sure if this is just a a whole tactic and uh, they may wish to wait until the apec conference in november in san francisco when perhaps the timing would be more opportune for president xi in his mind to uh, then encounter uh, uh, president biden I'm speaking with Sarang Shadore, director of the Global South program at the Quincy Institute. To change the topic some, we just came off a BRICS conference too, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now this is a term that was coined what over 20 years ago by Jim O'Neill, a Goldman Sachs guy in London. There was originally an investment concept, but it seemed to right. take on real-world life. O'Neill a few years later came up with mint Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria, Turkey that didn't really take off, but I'm sure you've heard the joke that uh, BRICS yes, but where's the border? Is there anything that really holds them together? Is there an organic community of interests here at all? Is this a coherent formation? It's as coherent as these formations go, which is never very coherent. So there's always rifts and issues and differences of interest. When countries join a club, they usually join the club because it's expected to give them something. 
it's rare that countries actually join in a spirit of solidarity for some elevated, higher purpose of the distant future, particularly. It's rare. It does happen occasionally, but it's quite rare. And in our times, I would say it's even rarer. So the formation of BRICS is not based on high-minded principles as much as it's really based on a set of countries coming together for economic purposes back almost 15 years ago, 14 years ago, and uh, taking their cue from exactly what you said, this this sort of uh, investment signal that the you guys are hot economies. And then they felt like they could actually brand themselves that way and therefore attract more interest from the investor community. Remember, this was a time when we had, in many ways, a peak of the neoliberal era and investment and trade. And even now that is the case. But at that time, they were certainly seen as these were emerging economies. All of them had tremendous potential, including Russia at the time. And South Africa was added because Africa was seen to need a representation. South Africa at the time was the most dynamic economy by far in Africa. So that was a motivation. It was very focused on economics and presenting a brand. And in some ways, also a coalition of China, which was a big guy in the room, and these other emerging economies that saw advantage in trying to bring some Chinese investment, including India at the time. The relations were not so bad between India and China. What has happened over time is that you're seeing, of course, geopolitically now, China and Russia are aligned in ways that they were not back in the late noughties. And you also have... um, a realization among these emerging global South countries like South Africa, like Brazil, like even India, that alternative models of development, alternative pathways to US-led institutions are the need of the hour, not to replace the existing US-led institutions, but to create complementary possibilities that can plug the existing gaps that they feel are not meeting uh, meeting their needs. So uh, in many ways, climate financing hasn't come about in the way that countries wanted. In many ways, development financing has been either from the World Bank or the IMF or has come from Chinese BRI, which is a bilateral play. The BRICS countries have founded a, a bank that where all five founding members have an equal stake, at least on paper. Uh, and they feel that they participate much more in the lending process than, say, they would in a World Bank format. Now, again, the Chinese dominate this bank in terms of financing. More has come from China uh, in some ways than uh, other countries. But on paper, at least, they're equally committed. Uh, They also have different sets of rules and standards for extending a loan in ways that are different from the World Bank. These are experiments. These are early-stage experiments. They're small But I think uh, there is a genuine demand signal that you're seeing from these countries, especially in the global south, that they they don't just want to rely on these sort of Bretton Woods institutions and the ones that came after the end of the Cold War in the 90s. But they want to evolve these so-called post-Western or non-Western spaces as well, as hedges, as possibilities, as even in some cases for concrete uh, gain. What about de-dollarizing, providing an alternative to the uh, dominance of the U.S. dollar? Uh, U.S. power is eroding. U.S. economic and political power is eroding. But still, the dollar has this very central role. And part of the reason for that is because our financial markets are so big that it's very easy to park a billion spare dollars in a U.S. market. That might not be so easy anywhere else. What about uh, this attempt to de-dollarize or develop some alternative to the U.S. dollar as the global currency? That's absolutely a priority for many global South states because, uh, as, as you know well, Doug, the, the U.S. dollar's hegemony enables the sanctions regimes that the U.S. so successfully pursues against smaller or middle power countries like against Iran, against Cuba, against Syria. There are so many countries on the list. And more than that, they're not just bilateral sanctions uh, or the U.S. and its allies in Europe, but they're also secondary sanctions apply. So secondary sanctions is when you're targeting all countries because they're trading with your pet enemy. And this is only possible because of the hegemony of uh, the United States in the financial system. So all countries really outside the core alliance system of the United States have a compelling interest 
in ending this sort of a hegemony, which could be used in theory really against anybody down the road. So absolutely, there is that incentive. In fact, the BRICS countries have spoken of it. Uh, the problem there, of course, is the practical nature of the problem is so difficult to overcome. To create alternatives to the dollar appears very difficult, very uh, long road. There are experiments going on on the margins, such as setting up more local, uh, more trade in local currencies. But that only works up to a point because typically countries run deficits or surpluses in bilateral situations. And the way they cover that is that they trade with third or fourth or fifth countries. And you need a common medium of exchange, which has been the U.S. dollar. So unless they can find a way, perhaps a digital approach that may emerge down the road or some other solutions, uh, because the Chinese yuan is not really favored by some global South states, at least, for example, India would not favor that outcome. And I think most countries don't want the dollar hegemony to be replaced by somebody else's hegemony. Well, but China also doesn't want to open up its financial markets uh, right. in a way that it would have to to become a dominant currency. Right. That's right. It, it, it has capital controls. There's no sign that it's going to ease those. Uh, so again, the, the realistic prospect of the UN at this point is essentially zero. But even in the future, if that changes, there will be a wariness towards the Chinese solution as being the alternative, probably from some countries for sure. There's a search going on. Again, this is a demand signal that's very strong, but the supply hasn't shown up yet or will take some effort. There are economists who are writing about this. Some have proposed possibilities that there could be a fragmentation of the world order in terms of dominant means of settling payments. Gold has been mentioned. Of course, the digital currencies have been talked about. But we'll have to see how this goes. This is not going to happen overnight. Well, also, the uh, the dollar system was set up because of the overwhelming political dominance of the U.S. And it's hard to imagine setting up an alternative without some kind of really dominant figure as the architect. Well, yes and no. Can we imagine a world where there were more complex arrangements of settling trade, where countries held reserves in different ways, depending on what region they belong to? It would seem like it would be a more fragmented world. It probably would be a more inefficient world, but perhaps a more secure world for the smaller players, for the global South states. But we are not seeing any signs of that. One sign could be, if this were to happen, uh, is if... Oil, for example, which is traded in dollars today, were to be traded in alternative currencies from the major oil producers. That would be one step in that direction. But again, we are not seeing any signs of that. And for the moment, we have to assume that the U.S. dominance over the financial system uh, will continue. Finally, um, the background for much of what we're talking about is the decline of U.S. power, or what people see as the decline of U.S. power. Uh, has the anti-Russian alliance around Ukraine done much to reverse that? Or is that just a temporary interruption or something more lasting? Or is the whole idea of U.S. decline exaggerated? What are your thoughts on, on that particular issue? So power is a complicated thing, and measuring power has always been a very difficult task. There are lots of debates in international relations on how do you quantify power, how do you measure power. Though those who just define it from a very material reading, adding GDPs and looking at military balances, I find it somewhat unsatisfactory because when it comes down, when the chips are down in a crisis, you realize that the military power may not actually work or even the economic power may be circumvented, and so forth. So it becomes difficult to put a precise measure of how much U.S. power has declined. But we can certainly say that since the 90s, when if you think of the United States in the 90s, soon after the Cold War, really the period starting 1992 all the way to perhaps the war on terror in the early 2000s, so about 10 years the U.S. really was about as, the world, I should say, was about as unipolar that we can remember for perhaps a very long time. And the reason that was the case is, of course, economic. The United States was the world's biggest economy. The United States was also the world's biggest investor. The United States was uh, by far the world's biggest military, had the most alliances, financially dominant, 
institutionally dominant, was creating new institutions, dominated existing institutions, normatively dominant, had a narrative about the world, about democracy, the march of freedom, the march of capitalism, that most mainstream elites in most countries sort of went along with. They said, you know what? The Cold War ended. The U.S. has won without firing a shot. They're offering this sort of a better world in the future. Let's go with it. It seems reasonable. And although we expect some differences on the whole, we'll go along. And that's why you see that sort of outpouring of support for the U.S., starting with the first Gulf War in 1991, when 30-odd countries sent troops to Iraq, which today is unimaginable in a, in a war uh, should one occur. Even the U.S. is not uh, is going to be divided in a, in a, in, if there's a new war in the Middle East, for example. So I think that has changed quite dramatically. You do have uh, the U.S. dominance militarily. On paper, certainly the U.S. military is strongest in the world by far. It still has most of its allies intact. But then you look at the rest of the list, and it's very hard to argue that things haven't changed very significantly on economics, on trade, on investment. China is the biggest challenger by far. But there are also other countries that have emerged in ways that just did not exist in the 90s, whether it's India or Turkey or uh, small countries like Singapore, Indonesia is rising. There are others. Uh, Mexico, has, despite its problems, has become a much stronger economy since the early 90s. Uh, so you're seeing sort of a diffusion of economic power, for sure, and also institutional and normative power. You don't have the sort of unqualified sense that the U.S. is going to run all institutions or found all institutions. BRICS, NDB, just paralysis in existing institutions, the BRI project from China. All of that tells you that there are many multiple nodes that are emerging here on the institutional front. Again, none of them is going to replace the old institutions, but you don't have such a monochromatic scene that you had in the 90s. And then normatively, the narrative that the future is all going to look like America has truly come apart. There are very few countries that believe that. Many have turned to other models where democracy has regressed or they have come to some sort of hybrid approaches to governance. Many are going their own way. There's just not the sense that the U.S. is providing that sort of model or ideational leadership in the way that there was in the 90s. That was Sarang Shadori, director of the Global South program at the Quincy Institute. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a recently remixed version by the Serbian DJ Space Motion of an old Ladytron song, Destroy Everything You Touch. Till next week, bye. Everything you do.